Good morning. This morning we're going to look at a passage out of the book of Ephesians. And as I mentioned in the beginning of service, and you might have noted through the song so far, this is Epiphany Sunday. Some of you may be familiar with that, others are not, but it's the close of the Christmas season, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's also this chance for us to remember that Jesus came as the light, the light of the world, the scripture tells us, and that light goes out to all the nations. So he was not just the king of the Jews, but the king and the gift for all people. And so this morning, our passage from Ephesians 3 speaks about the meaning or the significance of Jesus' birth and his arrival. But before we read that, I want us to start by thinking again about the, the passage from Matthew that Lee just read to us about the wise men visiting the newborn Jesus. The star arose in the sky and the wise men made their way from the east. And the church has historically celebrated this visit as Epiphany. And they came into the capital of Jerusalem. They came to the royal court of Herod, assuming that the king would be born in the palace of the capital city. And so they come to Herod and his court, and they ask, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? So we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to find him and worship him. And it's interesting, right? From the very beginning, we notice that God uses these far-off wise men, likely Persian magicians or Persian astrologers who studied strange things. He uses them to announce to Jerusalem the birth of Jesus, the birth of the Christ. Weary from travel, standing as strangers in a foreign land, they tell their story. They see a star in the sky of a new king. And with great joy, they set off traveling some 900 miles to come and to worship him. Excuse me for a moment, I've got to fix my stand. <laughs> there we go. So they travel some 900 miles to come and to worship him. Now, you and I, many of us know about travel, maybe even recently with the holidays. Think about travel, and it includes delays, crowds, maybe sleeping on air mattresses, children off schedule, all sorts of different things coming up. And if we picture ourselves, like picture this story, if we kind of grasp what's happening, we have to imagine these travelers, they were anxious for shelter, sure that they missed home. And at times they wondered in the midst of all these miles, is this trip foolish? Why did we make this trip? And with many miles behind them, they seek the end of their journey, and they now ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And so Herod, what does he do? He calls together his experts and asks them where the Christ, the king, would be born. And they tell him Bethlehem. And so the weary wise men set off again, the star they had seen rise, they see it again. I, I imagine they had stopped looking for the star because they assumed that when they arrived in Jerusalem at the palace, they had found what they were looking for. But now they see the star again, and it's leading them, and they have great joy, we read. And the star comes, and it rests over the house in Bethlehem, and they go into the house, and there is Mary with the child, and they come in, and they bow to their knees and present their royal gifts to the child. This is the scene that we can imagine. Pagan wise men, magicians from far, far away, hundreds of miles from home, kneeling before Jesus. This would have been shocking to Mary and anyone else 
There have been enough shocking things that have happened, but here might have been the greatest one, people from miles away coming to see their son. But this strange scene, this odd development, what I want us to grasp this morning, this strange scene is what God has always had in mind. It's what God has always had in mind. In Epiphany, we are reminded, we remember through the wise men that Jesus has come for those who are near and those who are far off. He has come not just for those who are within Jerusalem or within Israel, but come for the nations. And that is why the Scripture refers to Him not just as a light, but a light of the world. And not just as a Savior, but a Savior of the nations of the world. See, in our passage this morning from Ephesians, we'll see that Paul calls this strange scene, this odd development of wise men gathered around Jesus. He calls it the mystery of Christ. He calls it the secret that has been hidden for ages in God. The arrival of these three kings expresses the good news that Jesus is not only king of Israel, but he's a gift to all of us. And the way that our passage explores that good news is through two questions. Do you know this mystery or this secret revealed in Christ? And do you know your place in it? So thinking about those questions, do you know the mystery or the secret revealed in Christ? And do you know your place in it? Let's look at our passage from Ephesians 3, verse 1 through 12. You can follow in your Bible or your order of worship. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he hath realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your word. We pray that by your spirit you'd help us to hear and to understand it, and that by receiving it, Lord, that you may move us to faith, that you'd sanctify us and change us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, as we look at this passage and understand what God's doing in Christ, there's two questions I want us to look at. And the first one is, do we know the mystery or the secret that has been revealed in Christ? I don't know if you noticed, but at the beginning of our passage, it, Paul begins to start a prayer, but all of a sudden he stops. He starts one thought, but then he suddenly stops. He stops because he feels the need to make sure that all of us, the readers, know something important. 
It's as if he's saying, I, I am assuming, by the way, that you've heard of the plan of God's grace for you. You know, right, why I'm writing to you, why I'm a prisoner. Mystery is the key word in our passage. And he's writing, I want to make sure you understand the mystery of God that has been revealed. Mystery, what does that mean? It's a word that refers to something that would remain hidden if it was not revealed. Some translations use the word secret instead of mystery. This idea that it would remain unknown unless it has told, unless it is explained. As one author summarizes, Jesus here makes known the secret plan of God. The secret plan of God. As I was thinking about this, over the break with my family, we've been watching a number of Marvel superhero movies. One of them was the Guardians of the Galaxy, and towards the end of that movie, they're facing the bad guy, you know, like all of them always do in the movies, but they say they need a good plan. And Peter Quill, the main character, says, I have one, I have a plan. The others kind of question whether that's really the case, and he says, well, I have 12% of a plan. 12%, of which many people groan back at him. That's not even a plan at all. And I say that, if you can picture this, 12% of a plan as the opposite of what we're hearing here. This is not the case for God. Right? It's a silly, silly example, but it's made clear in our passage, this mystery, this secret, this is not incomplete. It's not a new idea either. Rather, it has been hidden by God from the beginning of ages and ages past. And so what is this secret? What is this mystery? And it's that God will bless and redeem a people made up of all the nations of the earth. This is where the scriptures are headed to. This is what God has had in mind. God, by his grace, will form a worldwide family from every tribe, every tongue, every people. And that's why it's important for us to picture those pagan wise men who have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles, kneeling before Jesus, that this odd or this surprising development is in fact what God has always had in mind. What God envisioned for his creation and for you and for me and for our neighbors. The secret has been hidden for ages, but now with the arrival of Jesus, it has been revealed. And the gospel is going forth into the ends of the earth. And Paul says that he has been made a herald of this message, this mystery. I'm sure you notice that the word mystery is used many times in our passages. The scripture is trying to explain it to us. At one point, though, it's called the mystery of Christ. It's called the mystery of Christ. And it's done so because it's through Jesus that this secret is told. This mystery is revealed. It's made possible through him. And here we begin to think about what Jesus does. It's through Jesus, it's in him and through him that we who are apart from God are restored to God. It is in and through Jesus that we who are separated from one another or isolated from one another are bound together as a people. And so as this is the mystery of Christ. And I want to take some time to think about what is it that Christ accomplishes? How is this secret fulfilled in Christ? And for us to do that, I want us to stop again and think about another image, the image of an olive tree. Throughout Scripture, a number of places in the Old Testament, Israel, the people of God, are described as an olive tree. A tree that God has planted and God has grown 
and made fruitful. But it's set in the context of life coming in a place of barrenness. This banner behind me I've referenced before, but it is a picture from the scriptures of the stump. You can see the brown part, the stump that was laid bare. If we think about the image of what a stump is, especially of a great tree, we imagine what is lost when a tree is cut down, the shade, the life of the tree. And in that stump, in that barrenness, God made a promise that he would bring forth new life. And one of the ways that's described is that he tells his people Israel that he has planted them, that he will bring new life into barrenness, that they are like an olive tree that he has grown and will bring fruitfulness out of. This tree is described with covenantal language. God says, I will plant you. You are my special possession. I will remember you and I will make you fruitful. It will be a blessing to you and to all those around you. I will be your God and you will be my people. The olive tree is the gift of God. And now here comes our connection to our passage in Ephesians. So don't don't miss it. If you were zoning out, come back now. (laughs) In the New Testament, the letter of Romans, Paul picks up on this image. He says that through Jesus, the Gentiles have been engrafted into the tree of Israel that God planted. Paul says, you Gentile Christians, you are a wild olive shoot, a wild olive shoot that you have been now grafted in among the tree of promise, that God has nourished you through the roots of that tree. Therefore, Gentiles, do not be arrogant towards the natural branches, towards your Jewish sisters and brothers. For now you share in God's promise. The olive tree being God's promise to us that we have been engrafted in. And that gets to what Jesus accomplishes as the mystery of God. Our passage gives three ways, three things that Jesus does by this engrafting. Do you notice the mystery of God is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ. Through faith in Jesus, you have been engrafted in, meaning that you are fellow heirs. To speak about an heir is to speak about an inheritance. And to speak of an inheritance is to speak about sons and daughters. And so in Christ, what's being said here is that you are not just one boarding in God's house. You're not an orphan or a slave or a hired hand but that you have been adopted, legally and publicly declared a fellow sharer in the family, hearing, I will be your father and you will be my son or daughter. In Christ, we are fellow heirs, that we are united to God by God's action for us because he has chosen to adopt you and to make you his own. Through faith in Jesus, not only are we fellow heirs, but we said that we are now fellow members The work of Jesus is not just for an individual reconciliation to God, but that we are connected to a people. The lonely plant that was by itself has been engrafted into a community of life and faith. This community is called the body of Christ. And we are full members if we have faith in Christ. And we see here it's not just that God who accepts us as full members, as part of his family, but we are to fully accept and welcome one another. 
We are fellow members with equal standing because our place rests in Christ from beginning to end. All are incorporated into the same body. This is a revolutionary idea, not just in the past, but even today, that lines between Jew and Gentile will not be there, that lines between different cultures or different peoples, different languages, that they would be torn down and that would form together as one people. No second-class citizens in the family of God. Through Jesus, we are fellow heirs, we are fellow members, and here is the climax, we are partakers of the promise. All of God's promises that he made to Abraham and Abraham's family carry forth to the nations through Christ. If you are in Christ, if you have faith in him, therefore you are fully adopted, you are fully forgiven, fully declared righteous, you receive the Holy Spirit and God dwells in you as his temple. And the Spirit seals us to Jesus, the one who died and rose, and if we die and rise with Christ, then we will live in him forever. And nothing can separate us from such love. This is the partaking of the promise that by the Spirit, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, a slave or free, male or female, that in Christ you are united to God. And therefore, sin and death and misery will not be the final word in your life, but God's promise will be. As the door of the house in Bethlehem was opened to the Magi, as that door was opened that they may come in and encounter and worship the baby Jesus, so we now are opened to the secret and to the mystery of Christ. The opening of the way, the engrafting in, that God is delighted by his grace to form a people from all nations. And so our passage asks us, do we perceive, do we understand this secret? Do we understand this mystery that is fundamental to the Christian faith and to what God is doing? This is the first question that Paul asks, but it's not the only one in our passage. The passage also implies the question for us, do we see our role? Do we see our place in this secret or this mystery? As the mystery is revealed, it is clear that it will include the shadows of death and the shadows of trouble. Did you notice, right, the wise men when they announced that Jesus' birth, they announced the star in Jerusalem, that Herod is troubled, and we know that he is filled with rage and anxiety, that he is not interested in welcoming any king, no matter who he is. And later, as the wise men present their gifts to Jesus, the gift includes the bitter perfume of myrrh, myrrh often being used to anoint bodies for burial. These realities of the mystery tell us about our identity, tell us about the engrafting of us into the promise. The tree of promise is not for those who have accomplished something. Not for you and me who have earned God's favor. Rather, there is a continuity that runs from the Old to the New Testament, that runs from the natural branches to the wild, wild ones engrafted in, that our place of the tree, the new life of this tree, always rests in God's action for us. We are those who have been rescued by God through Jesus' cross and body. God loves us because he has decided to do so not because of who we are or what we or others think of us. Our being in the promise, our being planted and accepted, welcomed and engrafted, 
is by God in his, the wounds of Christ. It's always resting on God's loving, gracious decision for you. Today, tomorrow, whatever day, as you ask the question, who am I or what does God think of me, it always rests on God's decision for you. In the face of our rebellion and sin and our foolishness and our death, God has acted to bring another word and life to you. And here's the wonder. You have a place in Christ and his people and his promise not due to your family or to your race, to your appearance or to your performance or your religious activities, but these cannot free you. They cannot rescue you. They cannot bring life. The basis is always Christ. It's always him. That is why the mystery is the mystery of Christ. And part of hearing this wonder of God's plan of including all the nations is for us to ask, do we know this freeing and redeeming grace of God? Do we remember it or have we forgotten? Herod and his court tells the wise men that the true king, the righteous shepherd of God's people, will be born in Bethlehem. And when the wise men arrive, they are overwhelmed with joy. That's a key part of our account in Matthew, that they have joy over what they're experiencing. On seeing the child, they kneel down and honor him in joy. And here's a lesson from Epiphany for you and for me. It's not enough that Christ has been born. We must also perceive him as Savior and King, and we must find joy in embracing him. He wasn't just born, but he was born unto you. Otherwise, we'll be like those who offered the answer, the king is to be born in Bethlehem, but simply stayed there, uninterested or unmoved to meet him. Or maybe we'll be like Herod, who rages at how this child interrupts our rule and our plans, our ideas, viewing him with fear or resistance. Our place in the mystery is one of joy, to not lose heart, for we're reminded that God has acted for us. Not only is our place one of joy, but our place is one of witness, especially in the second half of the, the reading. I'm not sure if you notice that the church is described as to be the witness to God's plan. It is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities, to the powers that are seen and unseen. That is, the church is like who we are, the community of men, women, and children of every race and every group, every tongue, gathered together in the worship of Christ is a witness to the world and to the heavenly powers. The revealing of the secret of God. One of the things that we see inherited other rulers is that rulers tend to create societies and groups in their own image. Uniform, non-threatening, marginalizing, reducing people who do not fit in. And what God is saying is the church is to be by its very existence a warning to them that this is not the way of God. This is not what God created when he called this world and the people good. There is something other than human power and human rule. And the church exists not just for itself, but to be a witness to display that reality. 
We do that by inviting our neighbors with our words into the promise of Jesus, proclaiming the gospel of the good news that God invite you in to himself and to his people. But we also give witness to this not by just our words, but by our actions, by our welcoming of one another to live as one body, bound together in Christ. Recently, I had a, a friend that sent me uh, an article by a sociologist named Jonathan Hade. I'd never heard of this person before, but he had an article that was called The Untruths That We Need to Stop Telling Our Kids. The Untruths We Need to Stop Telling Our Kids. And one of the untruths was us versus them. Life is the battle between good people and evil people. He's suggesting that one of the untruths that we need to stop telling our kids is that life is a battle between good people and evil people. He suggests that it is natural for us to draw lines between us and the other, but it's also natural in our hearts to make that other evil or there's something wrong with them. And that such as the seeds of racism or bigotry, of pride, tribalism. And that article struck me because I know that it is true in our human hearts, but also struck me because how our passage pushes against such an idea. Because if it's true that Christ came for all the nations and that we are to be witnesses to this reality with our words and our actions, then we're invited to a new way of seeing one another. I see that I am a sinner, and humbly it's by God's grace that I am reconciled to him and found a new way. And I can see my neighbors that they too are sinners like me, but they too are welcome into the family of God. Whether they're like me or not, whether I think of them a certain way or not, they are not outside of God's intentions, not outside of God's interests, not outside of God's love. And therefore I'm invited to see them in a new way, a potential brother and sister in Christ, a neighbor that I'm called to love with my words and actions. You see, when the local church gathers together, the hidden mystery of God is working itself out, becoming a visible expression. Therefore, the church plays a crucial role in the mystery of God. The church is to be the visible body that displays the manifold or the multicolored wisdom of God to all who would see. You and I are to hear the good news and to live it out by welcoming those near and far into our lives. And therefore, we are reminded the church's purpose is not just a collection of individuals, not just for our spiritual agendas, but we are to be the one body of Christ, the visible promise of God. And through the church, God will announce and display to the wider world that Jesus is doing what only Jesus can do, forming a new humanity, a new people, one who knows the promises and grace of God. Let's join in this work of God that he has for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you for your good news and your mystery of Christ, that we who were far off have been brought near. We who were orphans have been called sons and daughters. And we pray, Lord, that we may learn to welcome others as you've welcomed us. They may teach us to love others as you love us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.